I really want to um, thank you this morning for being a welcoming church. Um, there, there's something um, that's been repeated in each of the testimonies that we've heard in the baptisms for the last few weeks where each of the folk have said they felt welcomed and they felt loved and they felt embraced. And I love that truth that CBC is a church where the imperfect are perfectly welcome. We come in different states to church, don't we? And it's good to welcome folk, that they might feel the embrace, that they might feel the hug, the squeeze of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as they gather amongst his people. And I want to thank you for keeping welcoming people, whatever state we come in uh, today. God is at work in our midst. I can't tell you how excited I am that we've had three weeks, three baptisms. And yes, there are more baptisms in the pipeline, and they might just come uh, in September, whatever David says, but David's not an authority on these things, so that's okay. You know, we're going to continue proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We're going to continue giving people opportunity to share that good news of Jesus and to be baptized as an outward declaration of that personal faith. That's what we're going to keep doing uh, as a church. And so often, people's journey begins when they feel acceptance and they feel welcome, whatever state they might come into church. So thank you. Uh, for being a welcoming church. Well, this morning we get to the end of our uh, little summer teaching series, and if you've been with us, you'll know that we've been on a beautiful journey through uh, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, last weekend, Acts chapter 16, and this morning we get to Acts chapter 17. And uh, next Sunday, we're going to kick off a little teaching series uh, called Live Different, where we're going to take a deep dive into some of the therefore passages uh, which are captured in, uh, in the letter to the Romans. Uh, but today, we're in Acts chapter 14. And as we rejoin the story today, Paul is now on his second missionary journey. He's uh, teamed up, if you remember from last week, with Silas, with Timothy, uh, in Acts chapter 16, and they've just had the joy of a baptism. Uh, they saw Lydia come to faith, uh, they then baptized her, and then they find themselves doing some time in prison. I'm grateful that every time you baptize somebody, you don't do time uh, in prison. Uh, I'd have done a few weeks already on the trot, with more to come. Uh, but whilst they're in prison, there's this violent earthquake, and they end up getting freed by the magistrate, because the magistrate discovers that they've been uh, wrongly arrested. And whilst all this is happening, the jailer who's supposed to be guarding Paul and Silas, those who are in prison, asks the most brilliant question. If you've never asked this question in your life, I encourage you to ask it. It's a great question to wrestle with. The jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? In other words, what do I have to do to be in an eternal relationship, a loving, intimate relationship with the Creator God? And Paul and Silas say, do you know, it's fantastically simple. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then we discover the jailer, his entire household become Christians. And guess what they do? They get baptized as an outward sign of that inward faith that they've discovered. Well, shortly after all of this, as we get into Acts chapter 17, Paul and team are asked to leave Philippi because uh, they're causing quite a few challenges in and around the city because they're there. And then they find themselves in a place called Thessalonica, where they did what they did pretty much every single time they traveled to a new place, a new town. They found the Jewish synagogue. They reasoned, they discussed, they debated uh, with the people who were gathered there. Uh, verse 2, Acts chapter 17, if you've got a Bible, let's read it together. It says this, as was his custom... 
Paul went into the synagogue, and on three, Sabbath Sunday, uh, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Ever wondered how you become a prominent woman? I haven't, actually, but anyway. Uh, Other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. What an interesting response to the gospel. In Thessalonica, uh, the Jews become jealous, and then they start a riot, probably because Paul is attracting way too much attention to himself. He's getting influence in the city, and he's challenging their religious authority, and of course, they feel at threat because Paul is likely to take away uh, their followers. Oh dear, jealousy has plagued humanity, hasn't it, since the fall. We see it here on full display. I think Adam and Eve have got an awful lot to answer for. But if you've ever wrestled with jealousy, you'll know that jealousy is one of those emotions that has the ability to corrode your relationships. It's got the ability to erode that sense of contentment that we ought to experience in life. If you wrestle with jealousy, then it's going to pillage you of your joy. It's going to make you a miserable person. And it's going to distance you from God's perfect plan for your lives. Jealousy. That, in a sense, is a caricature of what we see amongst the Jews as Paul encounters them here in Thessalonica. So faced with all this closed-fisted hostility in Thessalonica, in verse 10 of Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas have to leave in the dead of night, and they find themselves heading to a city called Berea. Now, what a contrast. Instead of the hostility that they faced in Thessalonica, in Berea, they're greeted with open-handed hospitality. Let's read on, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, guess where they went? To the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were more noble in character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as also did a number of prominent Greek women, there's those prominent women again, and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. I mean, what is it with these Thessalonican uh, uh, Jews? But I wonder, did you notice how the Scripture describes the Berean Jews? It says that they had a noble eagerness, a noble eagerness, or an unpretentious yearning, we might say. And here's my prayer for me today, maybe you want to make this your prayer for you, is, Lord, would you please give me the heart of a Berean and not a Thessalonian? I don't want to be somebody, Lord, who's agitated with jealousy about the success of others or another church, but I want to be someone who continues to grow in the things of God. That's my prayer. Give me a Berean heart. You see, I think these Bereans are a really inspiring example for us as, uh, as being diligent seekers of capital T truth. That's their passion in life. They want to discover the truth. And you see from the text that it describes them as having a hunger for the truth. In fact, it says in the text that they actively engage with the Scriptures on a daily basis, on a daily basis. 
I wonder how much more like Jesus I would become if I cultivated a Berean heart in my life, dedicating more of my time to the daily study of Scriptures and meditating on its teachings. Well, I came across a a great illustration this week of what it looks like to meditate on Scripture. On a daily basis, I tend to use um, the Lectio uh, 365 uh, Bible reading app. If you've seen it, you'll know it and you'll love it. If you haven't seen it, download it. And it had this great illustration during the week on Wednesday. It said, meditating on Scripture is like sucking a hard sweet rather than crunching it. Isn't that brilliant? It's like sucking a hard sweet rather than crunching it. You see, if I suck the sweet, I'll allow all of those flavors to coat my mouth, and I end up tasting in fullness the sweetness of that sweet. But I have to admit, sometimes in my daily Bible reading, I can crunch my way through the text rather than taking the time to absorb the full flavor of the thing that I'm reading. Maybe you can identify with that. I feel really challenged. You see, the Bereans were suckers of God's Word. They were not crunchers. They were really keen to plumb the depths of Paul's teaching and all that Paul was saying. And maybe like me today, you feel challenged to develop more of a a Berean hunger for God's truth and an openness to willing, an openness to to question, uh, an openness to search, to seek answers perhaps more deeply. Well, whilst the Bereans were busy pursuing intimate relationship with God, and that's God's heart for us, out of uh, jealous religiosity, some of these Thessalonian Jews are out and about agitating the crowds and stirring up trouble. So in Thessalonica, Paul and team discover agitating jealousy. In Berea, they find noble eagerness. Our next stop is Athens. I wonder what they're going to find there. Verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Hands up if that's your experience of me right now. What is this babbler uh, trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing something strange to our ears, and we would like to know what you mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So what does Paul find in Athens? He finds intellectual arrogance, or we might say intellectual ignorance. And as he looks about, he sees that Athens is just a junkyard of idols. It's absolutely full of them. What a contrast between these three different cities. Jealousy, eagerness, intellectual ignorance. Now, here's a question for you to ponder for you today. What would Paul find if he came to Christchurch today? How would we be described as we're wrestling with the things of God or not? Now, of course, we need to understand that Athens had a reputation, and it was a reputation it was thoroughly proud of. When Paul visits, he's going to the center of Greek culture. He's going into to high society. This is a vibrant and into influential uh, city that's known for its education, that's known for the arts, it's known for philosophy, 
This city is a melting pot of all sorts of different cultures because of its uh, history. And as you look at the religious landscape of Athens, it was a smorgasbord of polytheism. This belief that there is more than one God or that you can be a worshipper of more than one God. And as a consequence, the city is awash with temples and altars and shrines to these various gods and goddesses. Now, the people of Athens were deeply devoted to their gods. And as a consequence, they participated daily in all sorts of rituals and festivals to honor them. Now, put yourself in Paul's shoes for just a moment. It is a brave man, isn't it, that walks into that context and preaches the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. It's a brave man who's willing to proclaim into that context that Jesus is the only way to salvation when you're standing in a city that believes that all gods can bring you salvation as long as you worship them sincerely. Can you imagine Paul in this situation for a moment? You see, the problem for Athens, and maybe it's our problem today as well, as we worship the God called Google, as we live in the age of instant information, Athens knew everything that was knowable. They knew everything that was knowable, except they did not know the most important thing. They did not know the one true God. The people of Athens had no idea what to do with their sins. Their little gods couldn't help them. They had no idea where to find peace. They had no idea how to discover the hope of heaven. You see, it really is possible to be highly educated and deeply religious and still be totally ignorant about what it means to live in relationship with God. I find that thought quite scary. So Paul finds himself now preaching Christ to philosophers, some of the most intellectually, intellectually and academically trained minds of his days. Now, if I was Paul in this moment, here would be my prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Get me out of these, uh, this scenario I find myself in with all these brain boxes, with all these really clever people. And actually, that's exactly what happens. Although Jesus doesn't take Paul away, he equips him for speaking in the moment. And Paul, inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit, preaches the most epic sermon in the, in, in the Areopagus. I can't say that. Areopagus, that, that word. Which actually was the gathering place of, of legal, intellectual, philosophical debate. Now, the genius of Paul's sermon is that he connects their culture whilst also sharing the gospel in a way that appealed to their love of logic and to the arts. It's absolute genius. Verse 22. Paul stood up in the meeting, the Areopagus, and said this, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked about and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, perhaps the first thing to notice about the first part of Paul's sermon is he doesn't begin his sermon by denouncing all the Greek gods and rebuking Athens for its reliance upon all these idols. Paul's message is not turn or burn. His message is not God hates your debaucherous lifestyles, you're an abomination to him. Instead, Paul begins by meeting them where they're at and appealing to their interest in spiritual things in the most general sense. 
And you know, I think there's a bit of a learning point for us as we go about sharing the gospel. The best strategy to reach our family and our friends and even our town, which is our vision and our passion, is not to tell them that we are right and they are wrong. Do you know what I mean? If you spend even two minutes speaking to somebody who's not yet come to faith, you're almost certain to hear complaints about Christians. And I can tell you at the top of that list will be at least two things. A not yet Christian, especially the most hostile ones, will tell you that they hate the way Christians judge others for the way that they're living. We can be really good at telling people what we're against, and we can be slow to proclaim the things that we're for. And then, of course, there's the great H issue, the hypocrisy issue. We can be so concerned about the specks in the eyes of other people that we don't notice we hit them with the plank, which is in our own eye every single time we face them. You see, the reality is, is my walk doesn't always match my talk. And sometimes it can be so much easier to tell other people that they're a hypocrite than admitting that we're one. And you know, as much as I hate it, I am a hypocrite. There's a disconnect sometimes between the things that I say and the things that I do. And do you know what? That's why God's grace is so precious to me, because without it, I would not be stood here this morning. Sanctification is a process that never ends. I'm not the person that I want to be. I'm not the person yet that God wants me to be, but Christ is at work in me, transforming me more and more into his likeness. And you know what I've discovered? It's this, is the more humility I add to my words, the more vulnerability I have as I explain to others what it means to live as a Christian, the smaller the gap becomes between who I say I am and who I am. And all of a sudden, my non-Christian friends and family are much more willing to listen what I've got to say. So Paul in his sermon here doesn't start from the position of condemnation. In fact, first he gets their attention by speaking about this thing, this thing that he'd seen as he wandered around, the unknown God. Now, there are all sorts of different theories as to what Paul was referring to when he spoke about the unknown God, but one common explanation is that since the Greeks had so many gods, they wanted to ensure they didn't offend a God that they hadn't yet discovered, and so they constructed an altar to an unknown God. It was a bit of an insurance policy, a kind of catch-all. Well, whatever the case, Paul sensed here that these, these people in Athens were acknowledging that when it came to spiritual matters, just maybe there was something that they didn't know after all. And that maybe, therefore, there, there might be a God, an unknown God, that they haven't yet come to know and they haven't yet understood. And Paul says, let me tell you about him, because far from being unknown, this God is very noble. In fact, he wants you to put your trust in him, and he wants you to walk with him intimately. And Paul's message is so incredibly simple. First, he proclaims the one creator God who made all things. Secondly, he says, unlike all of your little Greek gods who have got their own little temples and doing their own little thing, this one true God is transcendent and he lives in a totally different realm to them. And then thirdly, he says, the one true God doesn't need a building to live in. He doesn't need anything from us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We are utterly dependent upon him for everything. And then listen to what Paul says next as he reveals God's intent for the whole of humanity. Verse 26. From one man he made all the nations that they would inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. 
For in him we live and we move and we have our being. You see, Paul is saying here that God created us for a purpose. And God's greatest desire for our lives is that we should discover that purpose. Our purpose in life can be fully realized by seeking God and finding him because he can be found and then entering into a relationship with him. God is not far from us, Paul says, and in fact, he can be found by us and wants to be found by us. In fact, Paul's big point here is that God has predetermined our time in history. But more than that, God has also predetermined the geographical boundaries within which we exist. But two, he's also predetermined the relationships that we enjoy. Why? So that we will have the greatest possible opportunity of coming into relationship with him. There's a big theological word that describes that. It's wow! The God of the universe, the one creator God, has lined up your life and my life historically, geographically, and relationally so that you and I will have the greatest possible opportunity in our lives to seek him and find him and come into relationship with him. Do you know what that means? It means it's not by chance that you're sat here today in Christchurch. It means it's not by chance in 2023 that you're sat here today with these people gathered. I mean, take a look. It's a scary sight. With these people gathered around you. There is one reason why God has done that. It's because he longs for you to come into relationship with him, that you will find him. He's given you the greatest possible opportunity to be in relationship with him. Wow. Now, you know, given the genius of Paul's sermon here, you, you might think we're about to hear that repeated refrain that comes over and over again in Acts, and the Lord added to their number that day those who were being saved, and they were baptized. Let's read on, verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council some people became followers of Paul and believed. Paul's sermon is so profound, it's so beautiful, and yet some of the most learned, sophisticated Greek philosophers just couldn't understand it. Some did want to hear it, but we hear others sneer, and just a few believed. Now, I don't know what Paul thought in this moment, but if I was Paul, I think I've just preached the best sermon of my life, and to be honest, the response is really disappointing. But I guess this is a realistic reminder, isn't it, that salvation is God's business, and God can use us, and he does use us to bring people into relationship with him, but God is such a gentleman, he's never going to force anybody to respond to the gospel. You see, in many ways, so many ways, we cannot be responsible for the response of others. But here's the thing, we can be concerned about our own response before God this morning. And as I finish, I want to leave you with a question. How will you respond to the invitation of the one true creator God through Jesus to be in relationship with him today? Will you respond like the Thessalonians with some kind of agitated jealousy, stirring up trouble, causing a riot? That'd be fun. Will you respond like a Berean with noble expectation with a, a spiritual hunger. That's the response God wants from us today. That we would hunger even more to be in an intimate relationship with him. 
Or would you respond like the people of Athens, educated in ignorance, maybe even in arrogance about the things of God, satisfied with knowing an unknowable God when all the time the knowable God wants to make himself known to them? You know, God's greatest desire for you and for me today is that we would come to know him and be in relationship with him. That's the invitation. And we have opportunity for response. Can I invite you to pray with me? Our response today surely can only be one of commitment. And I just want to create a moment of opportunity for us this morning, maybe for the very, very first time, to make a commitment through Jesus to be in relationship with the one true God. I want to make that invitation this morning. But even if you've known Jesus for a really long time, do you know you're not off the hook this morning because you've got the opportunity this morning to recommit your life to him. To say, Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross for me. To acknowledge that in Jesus dying on the cross, he's dealt with your sin, not just for a moment, but forever. That's the grace of God over your life today. An opportunity to commit for the first time or again to say, I'm going to continue to follow you as Lord, as Savior, as forever friend. Let's, let's pray. I'm just going to pray a really simple prayer. And if you want to make this prayer yours for the first time or again, then pray it in the quietness of your own heart. Lord Jesus, I'm trusting you as Lord and Savior of my life. I'm trusting you for the forgiveness of my sin. I thank you that when you died on the cross, you conquered death, you conquered sin, and you've made a way for me to be in relationship with the one true God. Today again, for the first time, I commit to following you as Lord, as Saviour, as forever friend, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, words can be used to describe that love of Jesus for us? Well, let's try using marvelous and wonderful, eh? shall we? Let's stand together as we're able and we'll sing how marvelous, how wonderful.